I want quite literally to humanize the debate by putting a face on the people that are being deported, by putting a face on the people who are being denied asylum, by putting a face on unscrupulous immigration judges who are looking at this from a way that somehow they think that they're saving the country from some plague rather than understanding that they're making life and death decisions. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Bill Hing. Bill is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco and the founder of the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. His most recent book is called Humanizing Immigration. With the next Republican presidential nominee likely to focus on scaring us about immigrants, he is a timely guest. I asked Bill what brought him into immigration law and why he thinks we need to revamp and humanize our immigration system. He's an excellent person to hear from about these matters. You should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Bill Hing of USF. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Bill, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Bill Hing, and I'm a professor at the University of San Francisco, where I teach in two programs at the law school and in a graduate program that's migration studies. I have been an immigration lawyer since the 1970s, and I started out as a legal aid attorney. I did that for a number of years. I've been a full-time law professor, actually, since 1979, including at Stanford and University of California, Davis, and now at University of San Francisco. Along the way, I also founded a national organization called the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. I was the volunteer executive director of that program for many years. I've run immigration clinics at law schools before, but in the last 10 years, I started another immigration clinic at the University of San Francisco, where We concentrate almost exclusively on asylum. Probably 90% are Central Americans. And of those, probably about 40% are what the government classifies as unaccompanied minors. Well, that is a a long career in a important area. And I'm glad to have the chance to talk to you about it today. Can you tell me a little bit just about your youth? How how did you grow up? What's your own family experience and background? Well, that's a good question. I actually grew up in in Arizona in a small copper mining town 
about 60 miles uh, southeast of Phoenix. It's called Superior, Arizona. It's predominantly Mexican-American. Life was centered around two things, the, the copper mine, uh, and the other was local high school sports. It's a small town kind of place, and I love my background. My parents had a small grocery store, and I grew up working in that grocery store, and we were the only Chinese family. The dichotomy in the town was actually between the workers at the mine and the management of the mine. We all went to school together. They all traded at my parents' store. But one of the things that I'm most proud of looking back at my parents was just how accepted they were in the community and then how they stood by the, the miners in two strikes. They endured probably a couple of years of not being paid and extending credit to the miners. In return for that, they had this lifelong loyalty of the families that traded at our store. That's a fond memory. Then I I, I went to Berkeley as an undergrad, went from a small town to a, a campus that I don't know what it was at that point, 25,000, 30,000 students in the late 60s. I was there after the free speech movement had ended, which was more like 64, but right in the middle of ethnic studies battle and the battle over what's known as People's Park, which continues to this day and the Vietnam War. I went to law school across the Bay at the University of San Francisco. Probably almost every family in this country feels an immigration story. I'm Jewish. Both grandparents' families came around the turn of the century. My wife is Chinese-American, and her family came after the Chinese Revolution a few years later. So we have those stories on both sides, which are kind of amazingly parallel in certain ways and totally different in others. How far back does your family go in this country? Just that one generation. One of interesting exception. Uh, so my, my father was an immigrant, and he came here at the age of 15 with false immigration papers. I'm the youngest in a large family. And so when, when I was born, my mother was actually in her late 40s, and, and my father was in his 50s. He came about 1915 or so with false immigration papers, which was very common for Chinese at that time because of the vestiges of the Chinese Exclusion Act. My mother, she was actually born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, believe it or not, in 1901. I won't go into the details, but at some point my brother and I actually drove her there when she was still alive and we found her old birth certificate. But she went back to China at the age of three and with her mother to care for her mother's mother. And so in that sense, she never really grew up in the United States. She came as the wife of my father in the 1920s. He went back to China and married her. They were the first generation in terms of immigrants. When you were in college and in law school, were you thinking about immigration as, and law as a career? When did you focus in on that? When I was in law school, I really fell in love with volunteering at a legal aid office that was in the heart. Well, not exactly the heart, but it was in, in near Chinatown. This doesn't mean anything to people who are not San Francisco, but the, uh, it was on the corner of Broadway and Columbus, which kind of separated the Italian town, town at that time uh, from Chinatown. 
I really fell in love working and volunteering at that office, primarily doing housing, representing tenants, low-income tenants. That's what I actually wanted to do when I graduated from law school, was to work at that office doing landlord-tenant work. But the only opening that was available was an immigration job. And they said, we really want you at this office. Will you take this job and and the guy that's leaving will train you. It's not a romantic story about my family's immigration struggle. And in fact, both of my parents were detained on Angel Island. I could say that that was the reason. It, of course, validated my my interest in immigration. But the truth, it was the only job opening at that legal aid office. And of course, I've loved being in that field since then. There's something about almost any occupation where if you dig into it and and you take it seriously and you develop expertise, you're going to find it to be interesting and you're going to want to keep running in that direction. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, it was such a gratifying job working in that office. Clients were very, very gracious and thankful and you'd run into them walking around during lunchtime. Kind of thing. They would bring you food at the office, again, just to extend gratitude. And because I could speak a little bit of Spanish growing up back in my hometown, I actually was also assigned to represent Spanish-speaking clients in what was called the Mission Street office in San Francisco, which was on the other side of town. Primarily at that time, it was Mexican-American. Now, of course, it's much more diverse in terms of Central Americans as well. I was the only legal aid immigration attorney in Northern California for several years. And so I got I got an ulcer, but I also had like a caseload of 250 clients from all over Northern California. I would get calls from the UFW down in the Salinas area to say, and this is ironic, I would get calls from the United Farm Workers saying, hey, there's a bunch of our undocumented brothers and cousins that were arrested yesterday by the border patrol, will you represent them in their deportation hearings? And of course I did. And I said, well, how did they get arrested? And I said, well, because we we called the border patrol to arrest them because they are undocumented and they're basically breaking our strike by working. And UFW will admit this, that one day they would be on strike and they would call La Migra to come and pick up people, and a lot of them with their their friends and relatives that were undocumented, that were working. I learned a lot. This is a generalization, but most of my deportation clients were Spanish speakers, with the exception of some Chinese gang members that were also being deported. And then most of my visa work was for Chinese trying to reunite with their long lost siblings and relatives that were still in China or Hong Kong. Is there something in you that is like rooting for the underdog? (laughs) I love being an immigration attorney. And this is part of the heart of my book. The whole system, the immigration system, the laws, even the characters, the immigration judges and the investigators, they're awful people, many of them, not all. I mean, I've met border patrol officers who have taken money out of their wallets and bought food for people, don't get me wrong, but I've come across some very evil figures. And and so it's not difficult 
for me to root for immigrants against the institution of immigration personnel and also the law that I think is fundamentally racist. But yeah, I mean, if you're talking about other fields as well, I helped to get in place pro-tenant laws in San Francisco and sanctuary ordinances to kind of restrict what the police can do. It's easy for me to identify with those that some people would call disadvantaged. I, I, I call just kind of subordinated by a phenomenon that are often beyond the control of the, the people. I was attracted to your book by the title Humanizing Immigration because it seems like it's so easy to lose that when you try to do things with humans at scale and when politics gets involved because you hit each other with a hammer in politics and the judgment about a particular person's case might really come down to a balance of equities whether we want somebody in this country or not in, in particular cases. But could you characterize broadly our immigration system? My sense is from a little bit afar, though I've sponsored employees and stuff and had friends that have gone through it, it seems like it's awfully slow. It seems like it has a lot of scandal with children and others being kept on the border in terrible private prison type housing. And it seems also politically intractable. We can't get to reform that would put people on the right footing. Yeah. So um, first of all, the first remarks in your question about weighing equities and looking at individuals and who deserves to be here and not, and what are the favorable factors that's something that I wish that most decision makers would do when they're making these decisions is to really look at the totality of the circumstances and who this individual is and, and to weigh the equities and the pros and cons. But for, for a couple of reasons, that doesn't happen. One is often the law doesn't permit that. And other times, implicit in your question is that Many decision makers, especially the politicians, basically they've commodified the people and they look at it as, as data, how many people are at the border, or how many people are in detention and that kind of thing. But the, the root of the problem is the immigration system, the selection system, uh, who qualifies for a visa. And without getting into detail, they will put everybody to sleep. Most of the visas are available for very, very close family members. And then there's plenty of visas available for so-called skilled laborers. And the family system, which provides the vast majority of visas, is backlogged. And it's backlogged for the countries for whom it's important for people to be traveling here. For example, Mexico has a gigantic backlog, and now Central America does. The Philippines has a big backlog. China has a backlog. India has a backlog. Dominican Republic has a backlog. And it's because we only allow X number of visas every year from those countries in the family categories with some exceptions, for example, spouses of US citizens. The, the employment categories, they're not backlogged, but they're so hard to qualify for. You gotta essentially, I'm exaggerating a little bit, you gotta be a Silicon Valley, Apple or Google type of software engineer 
to, to get those visas. So most people aren't going to qualify. And so that's part of the problem, that there's backlogs. The other problem is that there's lack of recognition as to why people are coming to the United States. And let, let's just get right to it, okay? The, the big political focus is on the U.S. southern border. And that seems to be making or breaking presidents or their policies. And Trump was very much elected, in part at least, on his anti-immigrant platform. And a lot of the people on the right continue to support what he did at the southern border. And I, I, I have to drop a footnote here that, that I think, unfortunately, President Biden is is duplicating some of those restrictions. But what neither Trump nor Biden seem to acknowledge is that the vast majority of those folks who are gathered at the U.S. southern border are desperate and they're fleeing violence. And I've been to the border many times. I was just there in mid-August for a week at the Arizona border and, and volunteered at detention centers. Let me just give you a typical example of, of people I interviewed a couple weeks ago. It, it, somebody who's from Peru who was kidnapped by a member of, of a political party because his drug cartel, was, this is a leader of a political party, his drug cartel wanted this young man to sell drugs for them and, and he refused and they took him prisoner and they raped him and he escaped to come to the United States. Another person we interviewed was a, a man who is gay from Honduras and he was kidnapped by the police and raped and he contracted HIV from that rape and he escaped to come to the United States. We met a woman who was from an African country who was forced into a marriage that neither her mother wanted and her father had died, but her brother who was in the military arranged this marriage. She was 20 something to a 60 year old man. She would be his fourth wife. And in fact, he kept her hostage for a year until she was able to escape as well. These are not folks that are coming to the United States for adventure. They're coming here out of desperation. And all these folks came to the U.S. southern border. And what we're saying is, no, you've got to come in a more orderly way. Wait, don't come here. It's just such an unrealistic message that both administrations are have sent. And we shouldn't be politicizing these human lives. We should be showing some compassion, some humanity, if you will, and understand what these folks have experienced. It seems like in at least the national political discourse, we're very far from thinking about it that way and maybe getting further. And probably that will be a huge element of a presidential campaign. It's very frustrating in any issue area when you're working in something and you kind of know the difference between right and wrong, and it gets caught up in those big wheels. How do you think about the intersection between what you've written about in your book, the lack of human qualities to our system, and the politics that seem to favor some people hitting that issue with a sledgehammer and saying, you're bringing us the worst people? 
obviously I think about this all the time and, and I'm so frustrated by the lack of any progressive immigration policy. Even what most people think is a no-brainer hasn't gotten any fair, which hasn't got very far, which is a dream act for for folks that came here as young folks and grew up here. Listen, there are some successes in terms of offending off the worst offenses of the administrations. So I applaud the ACLUs and the Maldives who bring these lawsuits. It's all pretty much defensive in, in nature. But to do something affirmative, I still believe, and I may go to my grave believing this and not seeing anything happen, I still believe in the stories of the individuals. And that's why I do as much as I can to talk about the real folks that are affected. And when I sit down, and I have, with members of Congress, Republicans, I've sat down with members of Congress, and they actually understand these stories. They've been very, very open to hearing these. They're just so afraid. They're so afraid for some reason of moving in a progressive position. And I want to believe that there is this chunk of people in the middle, and I'm talking about the electorate now, the voters, that if they hear these stories as well, if they really care about human life and dignity and fairness, that they can make a difference in who they send to Washington and and support and tell them these messages. And it's far beyond me as an individual to be able to bring about all this change. But I think that there's enough of us that the immigrants themselves and their supporters, that if we keep reminding folks that we're talking about real people, that parts of this can change. I, I just really want to believe that. One of the chapters in your most recent book is about children essentially incarcerated at the border. What are the conditions that you're seeing there? How long do people get stuck? What's going on? Yeah. First of all, Trump in 2018, he did separate uh, several thousand children from their parents, okay? And they backed off on that after several months. And President Biden's administration doesn't separate children from their parents. But every day, every administration, including the Obama administration, separates children from an, uh, any other adult that's accompanying them, even today. So if they're with their older sibling or with their aunt or uncle or grandparent, they get separated. And they put in what they're supposed to, where they're sent is something called the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which rather than, under, rather than being under Department of Homeland Security, the Office of Refugee Resettlement is under the Department of Health and Human Services. And so those centers are a little bit better they're not perfect, but they're a little bit better. And their primary purpose is to reunite those children with, with a responsible adult in the United States. And so the period of incarceration there usually is weeks, not months, although it can be. I've been to detention centers for many years, family detention centers. In, in October, I went to detention centers where it was individuals in the middle of Arizona but the one experience that really I can't shake, to be honest with you, is interviewing children that were in the custody of Border Patrol. They were held 
by Border Patrol in violation of something called the Flores Settlement Agreement. There's a litigation that has existed now for 30 years that controls the condition of children. And so the litigators in that case were authorized to send inspectors to this place in Clint, Texas, because they had heard that the Border Patrol was detaining kids for more than 72 hours. They're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to send them over to the Office of Refugee Resettlement. To make a long story short, uh, a team of us, about seven of us, went and we interviewed several hundred kids. The youngest that had been separated was two years old. There was a two-year-old kid that was left on her own. Any of us who have been parents, that's unfathomable that that, that could be done. And the way I found that out was I was interviewing folks, maybe hard to believe, but we took statements, we drafted them, we had the kids sign them. And I went into this one room to print up uh, off of a thumb drive, a declaration that I just prepared for some other child at an interview. And I saw this mother who I thought was a mother with a two-year-old on her lap. And then another kid across the room who was crying. And the interviewers with the five-year-old took that five-year-old over to what I thought was the mother who comforted the five-year-old with a two-year-old on her lap. Later on, I come to find out that that woman that had the two-year-old on her lap was not a mother at all. She was a 17-year-old that happened to be in the same room as the five-year-old and the two-year-old who were not related. None of these three were related. She was just out of the kindness of her heart, taking care of these kids. And it just boggles my mind. Somehow we have to be able to think about that yeah. as if it were our family. And what? how would we feel? You know what? I mean, that's a very good way of putting it. And uh, we wouldn't put up with it for a moment. Uh, and, you know, the Clint experience has been written about after we left. That was 2019. And they, they finally ended it. But those kids had been held there for two to three weeks rather than 72 hours. And it was the same food for all two and a half weeks. In the morning, they had instant oatmeal. And at lunch, they had instant ramen. And at dinner, they had a burrito that was frozen. That's the same meal that they had for over two weeks, all of them. You've been studying this, writing books about this, teaching people you know, running a nonprofit, all all this for all these years. What keeps you in it? It's got to be awfully frustrating to see stuff that turns your stomach sometimes and to keep up the fight. It would not be easy for me to step back. I'll be honest with you. Uh, And and I'm glad you didn't ask me the question that I really hate, which is when are you going to retire? I I, I hate it when people ask me that. I I am in my 70s, but it's the furthest thing from my mind. And it's largely because I just think of the folks and what they're facing and how my life is so much more blessed than theirs. And I'm in a position to be able to do this work. And I have wonderful people that I work with. We have an immigration clinic at the law school, I said, and it's it's headed by this brilliant woman, Jacqueline Brown, who is crazier than me. She's got a heart of gold and she's just constantly out there day in, day out in the immigration courts. I hardly ever go to court 
anymore. I'm teaching and I go maybe once a year. She's there several times a month, as are the attorneys. The San Francisco immigration courts have a reputation for being okay, but every once in a while you run into some shark government attorney who for no reason is out for blood. You've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with crazy appeals. I just applaud the folks and I write about some of them in the book. Like there's a Reverend Deborah Lee who has been arrested several times for blocking intersections of ICE buses and she protests at detention centers every month. How can I retire or step back when community organizers and others are out there day in, day out? And I have the luxury of teaching and writing about it and and financially supporting or raising money for the folks that are in the battle at the front line. What would you say to a young man or woman, say, just out of college, thinking about law school, thinking about, is is immigration law an area that I want to go into? Oh, my gosh. Talk about the civil rights issue of the day. Listen, George Floyd and other others, uh, African-Americans who have been victims of police violence have influenced me a lot. And racial justice is just so important. I want to say if you're interested in anything remotely related to that, immigration is a field that combines areas of racial justice, economic justice, and human rights. And there's just so much work to be done. And I don't, of course, demand that of my students, but I show them what's there. Just yesterday, it was a Sunday and we had a group of 30 volunteer students helping people fill out immigration forms. And that's all you need to do. That's all I needed to do was sit down and chat with people about their lives and what their aspirations are. And it's easy to get hooked. Tell me about starting the Immigrant Legal Resource Center. I think of people as political entrepreneurs, basically, who see a gap and start an organization in order to make change or help people. What was the story there? What's the founding story of that? When I was a legal aid attorney, I got calls from everywhere, from community-based organizations, church leaders, to answer questions about constituents, clients, people that they were serving. And rightly or wrongly, I developed a reputation for being available. And I I just think it's so important to be available and just to be there and to be present for people. When I started teaching full-time, those calls continued to come because it's easy to find, even back then before the internet, it was easy to find me. People knew And so I continue to answer questions. And so uh, it actually was because of a funding opportunity. The state was providing a funding opportunity for organizations who wanted to provide legal services, but also wanted to be either legal services or support centers. And it was called the Interest on Attorneys Trust Fund, IOLTA. It exists in different states. And So I looked at the requirements and I said, gee, it requires you to be a 501c3 to be a backup center, a support center. 
And I said, that's basically what I'm doing, but I'm not a 501c3. And so I, it was, it's very easy to do that. And so I did my incorporation papers and I got funding from the state to, to do what I'd been doing. And it enabled me to hire an attorney and one thing led to another. And so basically the start of the Immigrant Legal Research Center was to be a support center and it is so sorely needed, not only throughout California, but we also provide national support work as well. What's the sort of arc of that been since you founded it? Has it gotten larger? Does it employ more people? Does it do more things? What's transpired? The Immigrant Legal Resource Center began in the late 1970s, and I volunteered as executive director for about 20 years. At that time, there were probably about eight or 10 staff people. Now there's over 50, 50 to 60 staff people. And at core, the main thing that it does is provide training materials, answer questions for pro bono attorneys and nonprofit organizations that are helping low income non-citizens. But over the years, we've recognized, for example, that we have a need to be in Washington, DC to help move along policy where the opportunity exists. We've been disappointed that there's been no major national legislation that's been good. But except for the Trump administration, the administrations going back to George Bush when we started in D.C., they've been open to discussions about how to make things better in terms of executive action, different policies in terms of procedures to facilitate better service. There's been some progress there, even in the Biden administration as well. And then we've also come to realize that Texas is ground zero in a lot of the state-led anti-immigrant movement. And Governor Abbott and many of the Republicans in Texas have tried to make life very miserable for non-citizens in the state. Operation Lone Star, for example, has set up a system where even before the Border Patrol often encounters somebody who is believed to be undocumented, the state enforcement authorities, they will arrest people at the border and charge them with trespass. Basically, Texas strong-armed landowners along the border into signing permission for the state to come on and arrest people for trespass. But anyway, that's getting a little bit into the weeds. But but the point is that Texas is is setting up a system where they feel that they can enforce immigration laws. And that's all being challenged. And hopefully that will get to the Supreme Court in the next year or two. And hopefully the Supreme Court will be consistent with what the Supreme Court has held for years and years and years, which is that only the federal government has the authority to enforce immigration laws, not the states. We shall see. I mean, some some people are worried about the Supreme Court on this issue. I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will help. But that's why we're in Texas, is to try to help. One of the things out of Texas and Florida is this busing of migrants to cities caused political problems elsewhere. And I guess to dramatize their plight or to run for president or something like that. What's really going on there? And it does seem like 
the you know busloads of migrants showing up in New York has caused a strain that is clear that it's probably hard for the the original states also like so there is there is something to a real challenge in dealing with all these people do you see that and what do you propose that we do about it yeah i i i do think that new york and dc and i guess los angeles is another place that buses have been sent and and martha's vineyard of course i think that that the federal government should provide resources to those cities now new york got exacerbated just because there were so many buses sent there the problem is that that is not the intended destination for many of the folks that were bus there and they were misled right and so there is a way of when we meet with people at the border the vast majority have an intended destination they have phone numbers of friends and relatives that are ready to receive them and so the folks that we're talking about would be distributed much more broadly across the united states if folks were just allowed to go where they wanted to go but i agree with you that the the cities in states like california arizona texas they do need resources there's no denying that and i think the federal government should provide that and then ultimately the destinations if there are large numbers that end up in places like Chicago and Manhattan, then yeah, we should be providing resources to those cities. And maybe it sounds like helping move those people where they are trying to go. Absolutely. Yeah. There are just so many that I know who landed in New York because I work with some of the folks that, that greet them. And yeah, the, New York was not their final destination. They actually wanted to go to St. Louis or places like that. Yeah. If you could wave the wand and start again with an immigration system, what would you do? Well, the first thing I do is that I understand that that it shouldn't be limitless. I understand that. But when it when it comes to straight immigrants, there ought to be a first come first serve system. We can come up with a number. And quite honestly, if you look at the history of immigration to the United States, straight immigration, We've been able to accept a million people a year quite easily. This first come, first serve system was not my idea. That was actually John Kennedy's idea that he tried to advance. And and that would have been what I think would have been implemented had he been president. What got implemented instead was a per country thing. But then the other category of folks that I'm very, very concerned with that I deal with day to day are the asylum seekers. I'm not talking about them. For those folks who make a claim for asylum, I actually think we should give them the benefit of the doubt. I had the privilege of being co-counsel in a case called Cordosa Fonseca in the 1980s that reached the Supreme Court. And in that case, in, in a six to three opinion that included Scalia, they agreed that we should be giving the benefit of the doubt to asylum seekers. They said that a one in 10 chance of being persecuted, 10% is sufficient to satisfy the burden of proof for asylum. Immigration judges have found ways to to get around that holding by saying, oh, we don't quite believe that person kind of thing. That's a big area that I would change. 
I would give the benefit of the doubt, much the way we give the benefit of the doubt we're supposed to in a criminal case, if there's a reasonable doubt, you find somebody not guilty, right? Well, to me, the same thing, unless there's beyond a reasonable doubt that the person's not going to be persecuted, we should grant them asylum. So you've talked there about basically legal immigration, people who could come in, whether it's first come, first serve or by country to a quota and people getting asylum, maybe not to a quota. We have a, a situation where we have, ten, you know, I don't know, over 10 million people who are undocumented and other people coming in, uh, in and out sometimes. What, what, what are we do with that category? Well, I, I write about an example of that in my book, a man whose pseudonym I use, Antonio Sanchez. He's somebody that I represented who had lived here for 25 years, no criminal problem, two lovely U.S. citizen children, one who was about to graduate from Berkeley at the time that he was deported. This is a challenge that I put forward to anyone to read that chapter about Antonio Sanchez and explain to me why that man should have been deported, which he ultimately was. He was deported because the Board of Immigration Appeals basically held, well, my gosh, if we grant him permission to stay, we have to let everybody stay. Well, yeah, that's my point. We should be allowing people who have lived here for most, for m much of their lives, not most of their lives, um, after a reasonable period of time, 10, 15, 20 years, let them stay here because they're productive. They have family. They're working. They're members of the PTA. They're soccer coaches. They're active in their churches. There's no reason to deport individuals like him. So, yeah, I'm advocating for a broad legalization program. And I lived through that in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was president and he signed the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act. We were hoping that more people would come forward. In the end, it was really only three million. And one of the reasons not more came forward because the cutoff date was that you had to have lived here for five years and automatically there were people that were not eligible. But study after study has shown that that three million that were granted legalization, they all became productive. They have lower criminal rates than anyone else. And their children had this phenomenally low public assistance rate, way less than average Americans. And so legalization of non-citizens who have lived here for many years should be granted. There's a appreciable, maybe 50-50, hope not, chance that Trump will come back as president. One of the things that he will definitely tackle is, you know, they worked on immigration throughout the first term. They didn't come in, I don't think, really knowing how to press all the levers or make all the changes. There's a lot of talk about politicizing the bureaucracy much deeper. What do you foresee if he comes in and we have him for four years compared to what we would get if we have more Biden? Yeah, I think that he had some very smart people in the end working for him on immigration issues. He knew to constantly be saying, I'm doing such and such for purposes of national security. That's why he ended up getting away with a lot of what he did at the border. 
and he unleashed many violent ICE, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement agents, to do their thing, and it wreaked havoc. Under Biden and Obama, there are enforcement priorities. Their enforcement priorities are people who have committed crimes and people who are just now coming across the border. Now, I happen to not even agree with those, okay? But that's what they're concentrating on. Whereas Trump didn't have enforcement priorities. He just told the field, their folks, do whatever you want. And so that's when you saw ICE agents occasionally going to bus stops. They even went into some health centers. They did employment worksite raids again, which neither Biden nor Obama did. I don't want to sound like I'm exaggerating, but it'll be very much of a police state from the non-citizen community perspective. Let me tell you, the day after Donald Trump won, the Wednesday after Donald Trump won, in 2016, November 2016, the one of the first calls I got was from a local public school in San Francisco. And I, I knew a teacher there who said, Professor Hing, can you come down today, this morning, to talk with parents? And I said, why? They're afraid to bring their kids to school. Some parents showed up and they said, is it safe to bring our kids to school? Because we heard that, that we're going to all get deported now. And that's what uh, you talk to any immigration lawyer. We immediately began engaging in these know your rights presentations to immigrant communities about the right to remain silent. If there's a raid and that kind of, that's what I see happening again is that level of fear. When you look around at the ecosystem that supports immigrants, that welcomes immigrants, that defends them and protects them, what are the groups that that uh, you think are leading on that, that you admire? Well, I, I, I really do admire, of course, the big ones. I, I admire ACLU and Maldives because they're taking on some of the bigger uh, uh, changes. You have to go to court, unfortunately, that, that the administrations aren't helping us solve the problem behind the scenes. But honestly, the groups that I admire most are the grassroots organizations that are dealing with the communities day in, day out, that they're providing food, that they're providing information, that they're trying to find legal services assistance for people who have a route to legal immigration status, but they don't have the money to pay for the for the legal services fees. And like I said, I'm lucky that I that I work with uh, a staff of immigration attorneys headed by the, uh, a brilliant, completely energetic leader in, in, in Jacqueline Brown, who they're fearless and they understand that they've got to have some balance in their life, but they also understand that there's so much work to be done that it's about rolling up your sleeves and, and helping folks who need the help. You've written a lot of books that have to do with deportation and related things. What occasioned you to write this particular one about humanizing immigration. What were you hoping to accomplish and what would you like people to know about it that might encourage them to read it? You're right. I've written a, a lot about the problem with laws and I think the misinterpretation 
of laws and the misuse of laws and including doing things in the name of national security. But I decided that that I need to tell more about the human stories of folks that I've represented and that others have represented. They're not all my stories. They're stories of, of other attorneys, but also other just human beings that are helping in the cause. I want quite literally to humanize the debate by putting a face on the people that are being deported, by putting a face on the people who are being denied asylum, by putting a face on unscrupulous immigration judges who are looking at this from a way that somehow they think that they're saving the country from some plague rather than understanding that they're making life and death decisions. And so I want people to hear these stories and see what I've highlighted so that they can see the light that will lead them toward a more compassionate vision of how we should treat our brothers and sisters who are from other countries that are, quite frankly, except for Native Americans, except for the slaves who were brought here, the folks that are are, are trying to get into the country or have lived here for generations and don't have papers are just like ourselves or our parents or our grandparents. I'm 58, so I'm likely to read this in book form. I wonder if you've thought about or are taking these stories and producing them in a YouTube or TikTok or digital way that that might allow them to spread more widely, that help people understand this, that are younger, that don't pick up information the same way that the, the older folks do, unfortunately. I'll take that as an interesting and very enticing suggestion. I have not thought of that, okay? I like that idea a lot. The blessing of, of being on a university campus the students that are attracted to me are self-selected, to be honest with you. And I think that they would help me do what you're describing and probably in a very effective way. Thank you very much for that suggestion. I love it. Is there anything else I should ask you that I didn't? No, I, I think we're okay. Okay. But thank you. I, I really appreciate it, Nathaniel. Yeah. Thank you. That was Bill Ong Hing. He's at www.usfca.edu slash law slash faculty slash Bill Dash Hing. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network, Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.